0: The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is the holy word of God.
1: Good morning. Uh, Let's just take a second to pray real quick. God, Heavenly Father, you are holy, and we know we fall short of that holiness. Lord, we thank you for your word, and especially this scripture of Titus 2, that just gives clear instructions, and not just instructions, but reminds us of the Savior who demonstrated that perfect holiness to us. Soften our hearts to your word today. Make us a people who are transformed. Amen. You know, through different friendships, I've learned that many of us, including myself, have a background in a works-based religion. And for me, it stemmed from my first church. I heard many check-the-box type messages without any reference to Christ. Do these five, seven, ten things, and you'll be good. And hopefully, we recognize this immediately as false doctrine. It's like the caterpillar in the artwork of our sermon series, and uh, he can't just flap his arms hard enough and try to pass as a butterfly. But growing up, I didn't know this. I didn't know Christ. I was someone enslaved to good works who knew some things about Christ, and this was extremely weighty. This philosophy bled into anxiety for me, anxiety over imperfection, and everything. But praise God that I was surrounded with teachers who taught sound doctrine. I learned of Christ who truly fulfilled the law on my behalf. And while I'm not perfected yet, day by day, he continues to free me from this perfectionist mindset. Unfortunately, we sometimes make this pendulum of faith versus works, instead of recognizing that these concepts are inseparable. Or maybe we trick ourselves, like we know there's a need for both, but don't actually believe that we can be changed, or frankly, maybe we just don't want to be. And so in my early faith, I swung away from good works, and I had this new mindset of, I'm good, I'm free, I've got Christ, and I know he died for my sins, and thank goodness, because I'm just a sinner. And I settled on this head knowledge of a God who justifies without actively seeking the transformation that Christ clearly calls us to. And in this case, it's a bit like that same caterpillar miraculously getting into his cocoon and then being satisfied just to stay in it. And in essence, I would see lists of behavior like these in Titus 2 or James or Ephesians 5 or Galatians 6 and then shrug the behaviors off thinking, that's really nice language and it'll be nice in heaven. And if that resonates at all with you, I'm asking you to tune me out right now and pray that God would open your heart to this letter. Because in it, we will see that the grace Christ offers is one that both rescues and renews. His death and resurrection were meant to both save us and transform us, making us his people who are zealous for holiness. And so last week, we started our series through Titus. And as a reminder, this book is a letter from Paul to his friend Titus after they had shared the gospel with the people of Crete. Paul asked Titus to remain in Crete, To help establish churches and in chapter one paul gave titus practical instructions about elder qualifications and interestingly paul then quickly pivots to talk about the rest of the people of crete and you remember the language he used it was pretty jarring right the cretans were filled with bad behaviors and empty words paul said they must be silenced they're liars evil beasts lazy gluttons and maybe the scariest part of all They professed to know God, but denied him by their works. How did they get to that point? Is it possible for us to do the same? Like, can we twist who God is and try to mold him to fit our behaviors and our lifestyle? And that's where we pick up today in Titus 2. Verse 1 begins, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Paul is now speaking directly to Titus, and he's saying This is how the Cretans are behaving, but as for you, you are to do something else. You are to oversee something else. You are to silence false teachers and fill that silence with sound doctrine. And before we assume that Paul is simply telling Titus he must be the super cool exegetical preacher who goes verse by verse through the Bible with every word he says, Paul clarifies in verses seven and eight what it means to teach sound doctrine. He says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity dignity and sound speech why so that it cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us so yes teaching by words is important but in essence paul is emphasizing that as the teacher titus must practice what he preaches be a model of holy behavior to those around him His actions must affirm the gospel instead of denying it. And now we've talked about elders last week, we talked about Cretans last week, and we've talked about Titus, and most likely you are none of those people. But today I have the pleasure of walking us through these verses, which include instructions for the church that directly apply to us. And as we explore these verses, you'll see that Paul gives directions to specific groups of people in a family. In doing so, he provides some order for the church in many ways highlighting how teaching progresses from the elders, we studied last week, to the older, to the younger. And while there are descriptions to specific groups of family members, I want to encourage you to listen not just to your description. There's some overlap between roles with these behaviors, and there's also purposeful distinctions of age and gender within the church that we should all understand. Now Paul starts with older men, and men, Paul keeps it simple for us. We get just one sentence, You are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. And in these first commands, Paul is describing behaviors for literally older men. This isn't more spiritual men or men further along in their walk with Christ, just older. And the first command to older men is that you are to be sober-minded. Now, the quick interpretation is to be someone who avoids alcohol abuse, and of course that's true, and you should seek help from our church family if you're facing this sin. But being sober-minded is broader than drinking. It means putting yourself in a position to think clearly, to always be free from every form of mental and spiritual drunkenness. And that's a pretty big definition, right? Beyond alcohol or other drug abuse, we're surrounded by things that strive for our attention, things that intoxicate us and become true addictions with the exact same effects. For example, are you stuck in a cycle of lust and addicted to pornography? Are you drunk on your dreams of retirement? Are you addicted to idleness, getting unhealthily lost in TV or on your phone? Are you thinking of the lineup of football games tonight instead of being present right now? It becomes easy to see that if we're honest with ourselves, we're likely drunk on some idol. And Paul plainly says we should be sober-minded. And in line with Paul's succinctness, I also want to be direct. This is sin that needs to be put to death. But, as an encouragement, this is sin that can be put to death by the grace of our Savior. And being sober-minded overlaps with another of Paul's commands, to be self-controlled, In other words, we should avoid extremes and carefully consider our actions instead of chasing the wind. Now, identifying the sin isn't always easy. Forming idols can creep up from just over time, and they can even mask as good things. And so routinely ask yourselves, your wives, your church, before taking communion today, pray directly to God, what steals your thoughts? Because there probably is something, and then repent and give it to the Lord, look to our church for help and prayer. Paul then calls for you to be dignified. And I think we all have a sense for what this means, but it's kind of hard to define like the you know, 10-step plan it takes to become dignified. It means someone worthy of respect and honor, someone serious and noble. And maybe you have someone that immediately jumps into your mind when you hear the word dignified. What do they do that makes them this way? I'm probably not supposed to share this work story, but many of you know that I work at a refinery, and I'm often involved with maintenance events where we need to physically enter equipment to fix it and ensure it can run continuously for years to come. And now this equipment is full of heavy oil and toxic chemicals, and my role is to execute a plan to clean it, make it safe to open, and work in it. And these events are hectic. The equipment isn't running and our management likes to give not so gentle reminders that we're losing millions of dollars a day when not operating, so you know, do it safe, but hurry up. <laughs> Last year I was in charge in one of one of these cleanings and I was on my seventh night and exhausted. And being tired, I missed a very important detail from my day shift counterpart. I thought that the six inch drain pipe that was about a half mile long was completely empty. But they had used it on day shift, and it was full. And later that night, we had to modify this pipe, so I asked an operator to open up a bowl plug, which is basically the threaded cap on a bottle. And so he opens it up, and can you guess what happens? Oil geysered straight up. And it was not stopping. Now, there were 200 pieces of equipment connected to this one pipe. So I had no idea where the oil was coming from, what it was, if it was safe to be around. There was no obvious valve to turn to stop it. And once you pull a bull plug off, you cannot put it back onto an active leak. So the operator, who was soaked in oil, was rightfully yelling at me, now what are you going to do? (laughs) So what did I do? I started sprinting in my steel-toed (laughs) boots, looking for one person specifically, Sam. Sam is an operator who had always been willing to help me, always treated me respectfully. He always kept his composure. He had shared refinery war stories with me. He went above and beyond to help me on my very first project, my first week at the refinery. And Sam had over a decade of experience, and he had seen it all. And when I found him, I started just frantically (laughs) shouting at him, And he calmly looks over my shoulder at the leak, pauses me, gets on his radio, and just issues commands. Nearest isolation valve is over there. I need three operators on cleanup duty here. Kevin, can you flag off the area and stop anyone from entering? And he had this fixed in minutes. And afterwards, he pulled me aside one-on-one. He just laughed and reminded me, hey, Brett, you have a radio. Use it. You looked really stupid running to me. And all that to say, Sam has dignity. I desperately ran to him because he had demonstrated to me time and time again, he was someone worth running to. I ran to him without even thinking about it. Older men strive to have dignity. And this is great in the work setting, but what would it look like to have dignity in the church? Be the ones we run to, not just for work problems, but for all guidance, small or emergency. You are our family in the church. And while us younger men should respect you, this goes both ways. Prove that you're worth running to by being sound in faith and in love. And this openness to love and teaching doesn't come naturally, especially to men. So be intentional about seeking other men to encourage them. Ask them questions beyond that awkward elevator talk Hey, how are you doing at church? With God? At home? At your job? In your marriage? As dads, And do this because you've been in our shoes before, you have experience to share, but above all, remember how Christ modeled this first in your life, training you to be patient and kind towards everyone around you, and welcoming those asking for help. These things make it irresistible to run to you. And these behaviors take work and thoughtful prayer to fulfill, and that's why Paul ends his instructions to older men with one more command, to be steadfast. Being sober-minded in all things, having dignity, being sound in faith and in love, these things take endurance to fulfill. And this effort is entirely against the grain of our society. You may retire from work, but you are not to retire from serving God. Remember, you are an essential part of the church today. God's hope isn't for you to just keep cocooned. He doesn't want everything you've seen and learned locked away until you die. Be vulnerable, share what Christ has redeemed you from and how he's still working in you and show that you've been redeemed set an example of right living and right faith for us younger men and for your church and even though you're older look inward challenge yourself do not be satisfied with where you are now remember where you're going you know too many times in bible studies or life group i've heard men and said myself i don't have much i personally need prayer for right now Well, Paul gives us a really, really good list to start. And Paul then moves on to discuss instructions for older women, and these intertwine a bit with younger women. In verse 3, he says, Older women are to be reverent or holy in behavior. And then he lists two specific sins to avoid. First, slander, and second, to not be slaves to much wine. And of course, all of us should practice avoiding these things, but Paul specifically includes them for older women. And it's the first thing he says, too. Why? I think older women, older moms in particular, can have a lot of their lives built up around their kids, which is amazing. And Paul even affirms that you should love your children well in this letter. But What happens when the kids begin to move on? I'm the baby in my family, and I know on my first day out of the house, my mom went to the movie theater, and she watched three movies in a row. And I still have no idea if she paid for more than one ticket, but I (laughs) remember what she said. She said the house was too quiet. And I've seen moms can specifically struggle with a lack of purpose or identity as they get older and their kids get older. And all of a sudden, you have this time to fulfill, and time without purpose is so dangerous. You can see how this could lead to a lifestyle of gossiping with friends at similar stages of their lives or drinking around the house to pass the time. And I won't dive deeply into these sins. Um, We all know we should avoid slander. We talked about this in depth as we walked through the Ten Commandments. Similarly, we know the effects of too much wine. This overlaps a bit with the call for older men to be sober-minded. Now, what's more important than avoiding these sins is the next sentence, Older women are to teach what is good. Fill that extra time teaching. It's so important to note the theme of everything we've read so far today, the purpose of being holy in behavior, the purpose of avoiding the sins of slander or drunkenness is not so you can just live this isolated life of purity until you die. No, God has much bigger purposes for you. And one of his purposes is for you to teach and model right behaviors and for older women specifically to encourage younger women, your sisters and your daughters in the church. Empty nester moms, if you're feeling that loss or emptiness, look around. You have a nest. Your work is not finished when your kids grow up. It's only just begun for your church family. And if that stings because you've never had a nest before, I say it again, look around. Look at the church God has blessed us with. Look at all the kids he's blessed us with. I will gladly share our daughter for a day. Cora is in deep need of teaching. And if toddlers aren't your gifting and love their moms, seek them out. And use your words to build up instead of gossiping to tear down. Use your time to pour into them instead of filling up on wine or other trivial things. And in the following couple verses, everything Paul shares are things that older women are to teach younger women. Beginning in verse 4, Paul continues, So train the younger women to love their husbands and children. And because Paul lists it first, I want to focus first on the idea of training women to love their husbands. The love described in the word Christ-like love is not one that comes quickly or easily. It takes time and practice, prayer, and forgiveness. And younger marriages are filled with first-time trials. But those who are older and have had long marriages or past relationships. You've likely argued the same arguments and have wisdom to share. This could look like so many things. Maybe you've weathered the storm of having kids and can offer a word of encouragement or a physically helping hand to new parents. Or maybe you know what it's like to be unable to have kids and still love your husband through it. Maybe you've endured the heartbreak of your husband's sin and prayerfully learned how to forgive. Or maybe you haven't forgiven yet, and you've struggled for years with buried anger or shame. Could you prayerfully ask for help on forgiveness, and wouldn't that speak volumes to those around you about Christ's love for us? Demonstrating steadiness and self-control in your marriages is vital for younger women to see. How many of us didn't have godly role models in our biological family, and what do you think these younger marriages will look like for those who didn't see a godly marriage between their parents growing up. Don't you expect there to be this pattern of following the marriage we saw in our parents? And I think that's why Paul says to train women to love their husbands first and then children. And I want to tie this into the end of verse 5. Paul's final command to older women is to train the younger women to be submissive to their own husbands. And briefly, to the men of this church, this is not something to be taken advantage of. The call is for wives to be submissive, not for you to submit your wife to yourself. Remember, you were called to be sound in faith, love, and in steadfastness. Ephesians 5 says you are to love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. But to the women, notice there's no conditional statement here on loving your husband or submitting to him only when he's perfect. I say it again, submission is not to be conditional. You can and probably have read this in other passages about marriage, but even still, it's not easy to grasp, and part of me really wants to put conditions in right now. But in this passage, Paul doesn't, and in fact, he gives a reason why it's this way. At the end of verse 5, he says, It's "...so that the word of God may not be reviled." His word may not be slandered. You know, it's tempting to think marriage is just this thing between me and my spouse, but no, marriage is profoundly representative of Christ's love for his church. And remembering this, we can also realize that submission is not weak. Our Lord, Christ our King, he was the ultimate demonstrator of submission with his death on the cross. Submission is anything but weak. And Christ's submission was not for perfect people, but for sinners. Loving your husband well shines a spotlight on Christ's glory and his works. And loving your husband well in the midst of his failures makes this light even brighter. How excellent is it for a church to see that? Pray for this love, not just for the benefit of a healthy marriage, but for the benefit of a healthy church. And I will add... If you are in the middle of an abusive relationship, please seek help from our elders. Seeking help is not going against submission or love. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Now, Paul includes a few more instructions. Older women teach younger women to love their children. This can be done in so many ways. Practically, love their children. Be part of our toddler or our children's ministry directly. What better way to show our children we love them than to teach them God's word? And Paul also urges self-control, and part of me wondered if that was intentionally listed right after loving your children, and I probably don't need to expand on that. But (laughs) think of the discipline it takes to discipline our children well. Remember how patient our Father in heaven is in his discipline with us. Pray that we can have that level of self-control and remember again the reason why, and so that the word of God may not be reviled That the gospel we preach by our actions would be fully attractive to all who see. And there's one more command I want to briefly touch on. It's to be working at home. And to answer a question immediately, does this mean women shouldn't work or have careers? Absolutely not. The excellent wife described in Proverbs 31 makes linen garments and sells them. But also, she looks well to the ways of her household. And so then, what does it mean to be working at home? And the best description I could find was to be someone who supervises your household with discretion and industry, thus avoiding slander. Now remember, part of Titus's task is to provide order to the chaos that existed in Crete. And in light of the Cretans' disorder, how important is it to have a well-managed household? This takes a lot of work. There's responsibility authority, and joy that should come from managing a household well. And husbands, we should also seek joy in supporting this goal. And so the decision of working from home or being a stay-at-home mom or a regular day job or some combination of the above can all be honoring God, and they may all be required at different parts of your lifetime. But it should all be done prayerfully with the goal of managing the household well. All right. You know, there's a lot here, and I know it might feel overwhelming. So what do we do? Paul is telling the Cretans to cling to sound doctrine, follow the example of reverent leaders, abandon chaos and false teaching, and in the same vein, we need to prioritize surrounding ourselves with the sound doctrine seen in God's word, preached by our elders, seen in the friendships of our church and in our life groups. We must also recognize our need to be transformed and to teach what is good. This work does not belong to our elders alone. And if I haven't been clear yet, I want to plainly state to those younger in the church, you should aspire to be like the older members of our church. Be teachable. And you know, when we had our first major life group change a couple years ago, I honestly was a bit bummed. Uh, John and I were in the younger life group, the Paddocks, the soon to be Cratchmers and Lawrence's, to name a few. And we were all just really good friends, and it felt nice being in the same stage of life. And I remember seeing our new life group and thinking, this has old people. How is this going to work? <laughs> and guess what? <laughs> it worked. And I specifically have a newfound respect for prayer because I've seen how my church prays. I have more self-control as a dad seeing how older dads have loved before me. I find I'm more steadfast because older men before me have seen more than I have, and they share that with me. And so if you're younger, seek the advice, the friendship, the discipleship of someone older in the church. Now, switching gears slightly, in verses 9 through 10, Paul lastly provides guidance to bondservants or slaves. He says, Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. And please note this language does not promote slavery just because something's in the Bible. It doesn't mean that God approves of it. But in this case, rather than try to overturn this system of slavery, Paul shares the gospel is for everyone, even those in the midst of slavery. Aren't you thankful for God's word that speaks to the reality of our circumstances? This gospel is for everyone, even slaves. And though they're a slave, they can adorn the doctrine of Christ. What a beautiful juxtaposition, despite their status, despite maybe their physical appearance or what their clothes might look like or how they've been treated by their masters or their owners, Christ seeks them. He seeks to make them holy and therefore make them an ornament that illuminates the beauty of the gospel to everyone who sees. And when looking at these verses in modern day, I think the application for us is our behaviors at our jobs. We should be submissive to our bosses in everything. We should try to please them in everything we do. We shouldn't argue with them or talk back to them. And this doesn't mean we should be yes men either, But if we have a better idea on how to do something or what should be prioritized, our attitude when responding to our boss maybe should look like, I'm trying to honor and please you. How would that change your reaction and your words when responding to what might be a really frustrating request? Oh, but I have a terrible boss, you might be thinking. Or my boss isn't a Christian and we just don't see eye to eye. When Paul doesn't differentiate here. In fact, he gives all the more reason to work in a way that proactively blesses our employers. Just like loving through a difficult marriage shines a spotlight on Christ's love for us, being holy in a difficult work setting does the same thing. And have you seen this common thread interwoven through Paul's instructions today? The reason why we're to act in these ways. In verse 5, so that the word of God may not be reviled. Verse 8 so that an opponent may be put to shame because he has nothing evil to say about us. In verse 10, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. You know, I think we recognize that these orderly behaviors are just good things. They're good in and of themselves, but, you know, structure was logically needed for these Cretans, and it's needed for us, but just like how our marriages are a reflection of Christ. In the church, Paul is clearly stating that our behaviors and good works have a much more profound effect. And sometimes when we think of Christ's work, we focus on salvation alone, that Jesus paid the penalty of our sins, but that's just one piece of it. And these last few short verses are overflowing with a more complete picture of the gospel. Verse 11 begins, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. And yes, Praise God that Christ came and brought salvation. But he does not end there. Paul continues in verse 12, saying that the grace of God is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Now, notice two things here. First, what's the source of all these behaviors and good works? It's not knowing the rules and trying harder, it's God's grace. And it's the same grace that brings salvation that transforms us to the holy behaviors discussed in verses 1 through 10. There's no separation. And when it comes to our behaviors and our works, he does not only teach us to repent and say no to sin, but also he renews our minds to say yes to good works, to righteous and godly lives. And second, did you notice the timing of when this training is supposed to happen? It's the present age, the here here. And now, we're not supposed to be idle now, thinking that we will only conquer sin once Christ comes. Instead, we should be training to be ready for his coming. It wasn't just Paul that stressed this. Our Savior did. We see it all over the Gospels, but one specific parable came to mind. Do you remember the parable of the talent? A man is going on a journey, and he entrusts three of his servants with money. And while waiting for the man to return, two of the servants doubled the money that they were given. And when the man returned from his journey, he told those servants, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. But the third servant buried it for safekeeping. and He returned exactly what he was given. What were the master's words? You wicked and slothful servant cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. Are we not the the servants in this parable waiting for our master's return, waiting for Christ to come again. We've been given grace and entrusted with the Holy Spirit. Our waiting should not be idle, but it should be an eager waiting, filled with purpose, striving for holiness. And that's where verse 13 picks up. We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I know this can be extremely hard sometimes, waiting for Christ's second coming, and even more so eagerly waiting for it. We live in a broken world that's in exact opposition to the structure that Paul wrote of here. And so do we just cocoon ourselves and hang on to our own salvation? Do we just bury our heads in the sand, ignoring our sin, ignoring everyone else, hoping time just passes sooner, idly waiting for Christ to come back and make things better, like the third servant who buried his master's money? Paul says, no way. There's no grace in remaining slaves to sin. There's no grace if we are left untransformed. We must be more than the Cretans of chapter 1 who professed to know God, but denied him by their works. We must be more than the false disciples who said, Lord, Lord, to which Christ responded, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Why? Because in verse 14, it says that our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, gave himself to a, for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Christ's death has redeemed us from the penalty of sin, yes, but his resurrection redeemed us from being mastered by sin. And eagerly waiting for his return means first having confidence that we are eternally secure because of his work on the cross, and then zealously using what he's given us to serve him, to acknowledge our sin and repent daily, to follow his commands, and to share his love with others, knowing that his return is coming soon. And there's two words I want to emphasize in verse 14 first, that Christ desires a people for his possession not just a person. And second, the word zeal. When was the last time that you had zeal? Was it ever for good works? And here we read that this is a gift Christ offers to his people. Ask God for that zeal. Ask that it's central to your life. Ask him to renew your mind for a hatred of sin and a love of his law. Paul knew Christ could transform the heart's of even the Cretans, the lying, evil beast, lazy, glutton Cretans. Christ, too, can purify our hearts and our neighbor's hearts just as well. No matter the circumstances, the zeal for good works shines a light on Christ that is contagious to our families, to our church, and to our neighbors and our co-workers. And One of my favorite parts in preparing for this sermon was reading through some of Spurgeon's comments through Titus. And I don't know how else to say it. Spurgeon, who I always think of as this like super dignified, black and white, you know, old man who's very serious. He was like a kid in a candy store, giddy with the instructions in this letter. He had zeal. It was contagious to read. And that, of course, speaks to the truth and the, of the teaching and the discipleship in this letter. But there was one very profound thing he said in the midst of the sorry, in the midst of this discussion about, order in the church and elders versus non-elder responsibilities. He said, every Christian was sent into the world to be a preacher. Every Christian was sent into the world to be a preacher. And just like every other creature that God has made, he will always be preaching about his Lord. Does not the whole world preach God? Do not the stars, while they shine, look down from heaven and say, there is a God? Do not the floods and the fields, the skies and the plains, the mountains and the valleys, the streamlets and the rivers, all speak for God? Assuredly, they do. And a newborn creature, the man created in Christ, must preach Christ wherever he goes. This is the use of good works. He will preach not with his mouth always, but with his life. The use of good works is that they are a Christian's sermon, A sermon is not what a man says, but what he does. The sermon that is preached by the mouth is soon forgotten, but what we preach by our lives is never forgotten. Christian, hear God's good news. Receive his full grace, not only salvation, but renewal. Be transformed. See the life that he calls you to. Will you pray with me? God, we are so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for the grace that you offer and that it doesn't end with simply justifying us as not guilty with our sins, but that it offers true transformation. Please soften our hearts to receive your grace fully. Help build your church to stand upon sound doctrine, not just in what we say, but what we do. Let the hope of your future coming guide our behaviors today.